Well, hey everyone, I'm so glad that you're joining us again. And uh, by the way, I just want you to know we consider you part of our online family at The Bridge. You're not just someone watching from afar. We really do appreciate your time and we value you and what you're going through. This is why we love chatting with you and knowing, wanting to know what's going on in your life so that we can help you take one more step in following Jesus or just getting to know him if you don't. This message of what we're gonna talk about together, this is for anyone who is really desiring clarity on what love is. Maybe a working definition of love, and maybe even what it's not. I mean, we live in a world where we use that word for everything, right? I mean, I love my dog, I love pizza, I love my wife. We have one word to describe how we feel about certain things, but we would back up to say, well, no, 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 wait, I, I, don't, I don't love them the same. I don't feel the same. I'm not committed the same. So if you want a working definition or a clear definition of what love is or is not, this is for you today. Also, if you would love to have a role model of what love looks like, this is for you today. You know, we grew up in a world to where we hear a lot about love, but we see so many relationships, friendships, and marriages that seem to fall out of love. And so uh, what does it take to stay in love? And that's the third thing we're going to talk about. If you're looking for a new love to keep you in love, this is what today is all about. Again, so many times in our culture, we use this word love, and it's attached to a feeling well, what do you do when those feelings disappear or at least begin to dissipate? Where do you turn? It, there are times I, I just need a new way to love her. I need a new way to love him if that's even possible. Well, I want to let you know I think it is, and that's what we're going to talk about. And let me kind of set the stage for you real fast before I show you the passage. We're actually going to be in John 13 and 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, let me tell you what's happening. Jesus has been with his disciples for three years. He has shown them time and time again exactly what love looks like, what love sounds like, what love feels like. I mean, these guys, have, they've gotten a front row seat to watching love in action. They're not reading it in a book. They're not hearing about it on a podcast. They are watching it day in and day out. This is love. This is love. This is real love. No one loves like that. Who talks about love the way he talks about it? What a blessing these guys had for three years. Then came the final night, uh, the Last Supper, if you will. It's what it's known as. Jesus even said, man, I have looked forward to this last meal with you that we're going to have. Jesus was excited to be with them because Jesus knew what was about to take place. They didn't know. I, I want to take you into that room for just a moment. As they entered the room, Jesus did something that was reserved for a house servant only. Uh, Jesus picked up a towel. He took a a basin of water, and he washed their disciples' feet. And Simon Peter actually had a problem with it when you read it. It's like, you're not supposed to wash my feet. And he argued with Jesus. Jesus argued with him, and you never win an argument when you argue with Jesus, so Jesus wins. Jesus washes all of their feet. And by the way, to throw it in there, even Judas. 
and something would take place in just a few moments with Judas um, where it would be known that he was the one who would betray him. It's an amazing conversation of how it all happens. I encourage you to read that. But it's so interesting what the scripture says that Jesus tells them someone will betray him in this group, this close-knit, these friends, this friendship that they've developed with one another over three years. Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and it, it, it falls to Judas. And Jesus looks at Judas after Judas says, is it me? He goes, it's you. And he says to him, go quickly and do what you are to do. Because Judas, Judas had already made a deal. And Judas gets up to leave. Now, think about being a disciple in that moment. You, you, you are shocked at the fact that one of you, and now you know who, is going to betray your leader, your follower, that you've called him Lord, your rabbi, and he's going to betray him. We trusted you. you oh, and, and it says that he got up and left. So think about this moment. Judas, one of your closest friends in the group you've traveled with. Jesus says, you're going to betray me. Go and do quickly what you're going to do. Judas gets up and leaves the room. Now, here's what's fascinating. The Bible says that when Judas left the room, this started the clock on his betrayal. He knew, I only have a few minutes left. And in fact, that is exactly what Jesus looks at the disciples and says. Judas gets up, walks out of the room, and when the door closes, Jesus looks and says, I don't have much time with you remaining. Listen to me. Now, this is a setting for whatever Jesus is about to say next is pretty important. I think we could agree with that. His time is short. He knows what's about to happen in just a few moments from now. So he's wanting to get the closest thing to his heart out on the table. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 13. Here's what he says, starting in verse 34. So now I'm leaving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. I mean, if you ever wanted to know what's closest to the heart of Jesus, this would be it. I only have a few minutes left. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to do. You've got to do this. Love one another. Now, I want us to look at these, these just two verses. It's just two sentences. That's it. But I want you to look at a few things in, the, in these sentences. Here's what Jesus says. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another. Now, as you're reading it, it's okay to just stop and go, wait a minute. <laughs> the entire Bible, there's not a commandment to love one another. Like nowhere in Scripture does it ever say love one another. And in fact, it does. It's actually in the Old Testament where God had already said to love your neighbor. Uh, Jesus had said this before to love one another. This, this, so this, this isn't new, Jesus. When you look at the word new, the word new in this passage actually means fresh or unprecedented, unused before. This, Jesus is saying this is a fresh commandment, which also means instruction. So this is a fresh, new, unprecedented, unused instruction or direction of life I want you to take. Love one another. But the love one another is not the new. 
The new is this phrase, as I have loved you. That's the new. That's the fresh. That's the unprecedented. They had heard love one another before. They had never heard this before. You love each other as I have loved you. The same way I love you, you've seen me love you, I want you to do that to one another. I don't want you to love one another the way the world says love one another. That's old. That's used. Here's something brand new for you in your marriage. I want you to love your spouse the way I love you. Here's something brand new for your friendship. I want you to love him the same way I love you. This is brand new. This is fresh. This is unprecedented for your working relationships. I want you to love them the same way I love you. Now, here's what we would say. You don't know them, Jesus. <laughs> um, Jesus, I would love my husband, but you don't know him very well. So let me just tell you about him, okay? Don't forget who just walked out of the room. And Jesus loved him well. Jesus served him. And, and this is the part that the disciples missed, to be real honest. Jesus just loved Judas well. He had loved him well. And then he turns to say, don't love people the way you want to love them or how you feel you should love them. I want you to love others the same way I loved you. Do you see it? They'd never heard this before. It was a new commandment. Now, and if you want to know if Jesus is really getting his point across, look at it again, and we'll, we'll, we'll highlight it on the screen for you. How many times did he say it? Three times. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another. There's one. Just as I have loved you. You should love one another. Two. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Three times, two sentences, Jesus says, I'm just telling you, this is the secret. This is a new love that will keep you in love through the hard times, and it's the way I love you. Love one another. Now, what's so fascinating is the word that he used, love. It is not a noun. It is a verb that he used, and it's a different type of love. This is not a love based on feelings. Feelings come and go, and when we don't feel like we love that other person, then I must not love them. Jesus says, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking love verb to lead your feelings. So when you don't feel love for them, put it into action and love them anyway. This is new, this is fresh, this is different, and that's what I'm wanting you to do. Uh, Rick Renner is an amazing author, amazing scholar, biblical scholar, and he defined this word love that Jesus used, which in Greek is actually agape love. Here's how Rick Renner defined agape love. Agape love is a divine love that gives and gives and gives even if it's never responded to, never thanked, or acknowledged. Agape is a love that isn't based on response, but on a decision to keep on loving. 
regardless of a recipient's response or lack of response. Wow, that love is a different love than how our culture defines love. That is a new, fresh take on what love really is in the eyes of Jesus and how Jesus actually demonstrated. Now, if you want a clear picture of what love is, or perhaps what love is not, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's so fascinating because this passage was not written for weddings, by the way. <laughs> you know, this is known as the wedding uh, uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and it fits well in weddings as it should, but it was actually written to a church, a group of Christians who got this love thing way off base of what God ever intended it to be. So the Apostle Paul is reminding them and writing to them, I want to remind you of what love is and what love is not. And he groups it together. It's so fascinating, so smart. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, here's how he starts. And these are the two words he puts together. Love is patient and kind. He says, let me tell you what love is. Love, a verb, is patient and kind. What do you have to have to have patience with someone? Time. Love is when I'm giving you something of mine and it's my time. And that in this space of time, I'm listening to you. I'm loving you because I'm offering to you something that I could be using on myself or somewhere else, but I'm giving it to you. And in this moment, by sitting with you, by talking with you, by listening to you, I'm actually showing you my patience. And the word patient actually means long-spirited. It's not, hey, let me, let me, what you got? What you got? Because well, I got to, I got to. If other people feel like they're on your time schedule, that's not love. And he pairs it with a word, kind. Love is patient and kind. The word for kind is sweetness. You're like, now we're getting into Valentine's. That's what I'm talking about right there, my sweetness. Here's, here's, here's what he's saying. When you give someone your time and you're patient with them, it creates an atmosphere of kindness and sweetness so that that person actually feels cared for, feels valued, feels like you're listening to them. So this is the question does your spouse, your closest friend, your friend group, uh, put it in context of whatever relationship you want to. When you are with them, do they feel an atmosphere of being kind toward them? And that you're giving them your patience and your time to listen to them. Why? Because you value them. That's what love looks like. It's patient and it's kind. Now, this is fascinating because the Apostle Paul is about to shift gears. He's going to move from telling you what love is to then explaining what love is not. Why would he do such a thing? Here's why. Because the kind of love that God desires for us to, to give to one another, the same kind he gave to us, so many times it's hard to explain. So it's easier at times to tell you what it's not than to tell you what it is, right? If something is so great, so grand, it's hard to put into words. Sometimes you can just describe what it's not and that helps describe what it actually is. This is what the author does. So he, he says, love is patient, love is kind. And then he says, love is not 
Jealous and love does not brag. It's interesting he puts those two together. Um, jealousy is simply this. I cannot celebrate with you, with your good fortune of what has happened so wonderful in your life, because the highlights of your life are simply a reminder of what I don't have in my life. So when I see someone post, when I hear a friend talk about something great that's happened with them, if all it does is to remind me of the negative of what I don't have in my life, I cannot celebrate with them and it creates jealousy for them. So my only alternative is, well, if I can't celebrate with you, I want to brag about what I do have. And so let me let me take what, what I do have and what is good about my life that I think is good anyway, and I'm going to make that really big to take the light off of your good fortune and put it on my good fortune. What a torturous way to live in relationships when you can't celebrate another human being because you really do view the things in your life as not as good as what has happened to someone else in their life. So love is not that. And he goes on to say, and love is not arrogant or rude, and it does not seek its own. It's interesting he puts these together. Love is not arrogant. That literally the illustration is a balloon that you are puffing up. The Greek word is to puff up. That's what it means. Love does not puff itself up um, to so that you can see I'm better than you. That's what love is not. When I think or believe, I might not say it, but I really do think I'm better than you. I think I'm just a notch above you. I think I'm a little bit smarter than you. I think I'm a little bit better looking than you. I'm a little bit more athletic than you are. And I really do believe that. When I believe that, I cannot demonstrate true love to you. In fact, watch the progression. If I puff myself up in my own mind, it fleshes itself out to become rude. That in some way, somehow, I say something, I do something that belittles you, that makes you know that I really do believe I'm a little bit better than you. So my arrogance of being puffed up displays itself in rudeness. And I'm really just looking out for me. That's the result. And that's the bottom line. Um, you know this person because you feel like you have to walk on eggshells around them. You're very careful with your words. You, you don't feel like you can actually be yourself because you know that their world really revolves around them. You would love to enter their world, but you just can't because at the end of the day, it's happened to where their arrogance leads to their rudeness, and in their rudeness, they have shown you they do not really love you. They really love themselves. Do you know of anyone like this? Don't type it out or don't point to them or call them or text them right now. I'm just asking, right? Here's a better question. Has that ever been you? See, unfortunately, I'm giving you the list of where I have failed when I really look at what love is and what love is not. I don't check the boxes all the time in this. And I want to talk about that in just a moment. But first, I want to show you again what Paul says love is not. In verse 5, here's what he says. Love is not easily angered and watch what he pairs it with. 
keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I want to explain this because this is such a great definition for us to understand even what angered is, right? Love is not easily angered. You get angry when someone takes something from you. Why? They, they, they took something from you. They, 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 they got in your space and you felt like they were moving in to hurt you somehow because maybe they've taken something from you before, so you have a guard up. It creates this anger in you when someone takes something from you. Therefore, you have a record of what they owe you. And so anger will always keep a record of wrong. Why? Because of what you took from me, I now have on record what you owe me. You took from me respect, so now you owe me respect. You took from me a childhood, now you owe me a childhood. Anger creates a record of wrongs. Anger also does something else relationally. When we are angry with someone, a stop sign comes up in between us and that person. They can't, their love is not received by you, and you can't give love to them. Anger stops the relational movement forward every single time. And when we're angry with someone because they've done wrong to us, therefore, we have a ledger for what they did and what they owe us, that relationship will stay at surface level at best. It, the, the conversation will be about the weather. The conversation will be very short. How are you? Good. Good. How are the, the kids good? The kids are good. It'll never be a depth to it. In a marriage, when we keep a record of wrongs from what our spouse did, a stop sign is coming up between us to where now instead of feeling like we are one in a marriage, we feel more like, roommates just living in the same house. Why? Because we have allowed our hearts to turn inward because now they owe us. That's not love is what the Bible says. That's not a love acted upon the way God has loved you. That's the game changer. Um, he says this as well in verse 6, gives us another uh, example of what love is not. He says, love does not delight at wrongdoing, but celebrates with the truth. Now, this is fascinating. I want you to look at the words in this verse. It does not delight. Delight is this. The word simply means a heart that leans toward in a happy stance. A heart that leans toward in a happy stance. I did that for a smile in my eyes. Okay, maybe not. But the heart is happy, leaning toward, what does it say? At wrongdoing. It doesn't mean you are doing the wrong. It's leaning toward the wrongdoing. And you're happy to watch it. You're happy to hear it. You're happy to read it. You're happy to, oh, tell me more. What happened to them? Oh. They were in a car wreck. How bad were they hurt? Was it really bad? You know, because he hurt me really bad. And I just want to, I want to pray for him. You know, we come up with these ideas of what makes our heart happy in the wrong doing. It doesn't mean we're doing it. It just means our heart is happy to lean that way at it. 
that's not love. He says, but love actually celebrates with the truth. Look at the difference. A heart leans at wrongdoing, that's not love. But a love that celebrates with, it's in it, it's connected to, it's joined to with what is true, what is right, what is noble, what is pure, what is godly. It celebrates and can celebrate that. Why? Because it's leaned away from wrongdoing, leaning toward what is true, and the heart can celebrate it. That's love. It's what it's not, and it's what it is. Then he wraps it up by saying something amazing about love. And here's what I want to do. I want to read it to you the way it's written. And then I want to read it to you of what he's really saying, because I just think it's so powerful. It's so good. In verse 7 and 8, 1 Corinthians 13, here's what he says. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endure all things. Love never fails. Now, you might read that and go, it believes all things? So two plus two is nine? I mean, is that, you know, that's a belief, but that's a wrong belief. That's not what he's saying, okay? In context, here's what the words actually mean, and here's what he is saying to these Christians who can't get this love thing right in difficult circumstances. I want to read to you what he's actually saying. Love will always patiently endure and remain under the weight of the situation, never losing faith and always having hope. Love never fails. We live in a world when the relationship hurts or the relationship is hard, we bail. It's the world we live in. We will unfollow someone so fast on social media, right? Um, we will ghost our friends who have been friends for the longest times when we hit a, a pothole in the road of life together. We can just bail. We live in such a world that doesn't know how to handle difficulties in relationships. So Paul is saying, let me tell you what love actually does. Under the weight of the situation, love looks at the other person and just says, I'm not leaving you. I don't know how this is going to work out for you. I don't know how this is going to work out for your family. Maybe it's personal. I don't know how this is going to work out for our marriage or our family, but I'm not bailing on you emotionally. I'm not bailing on you relationally, and I'm not bailing on us physically. I will stay under this weight believing hoping and having faith, God will work this out for good. That's what he's saying. And he wraps it up with these simple words. Love never ends. When do I step out from under this? Never. When do I let go of this kind of love? Never. Why? Because love never ends. I'll stay here with you under the weight. And we will believe and hope together to see what God will do. That's what love is. That's what love does. That's, that's more than a feeling. That's more than an emotion. That is a commitment. It is a choice. And it is an action. And it's fresh and it's new. It's different than what this world has to offer us, isn't it? Um, when, when you go back to, to John chapter 13, the disciples didn't get what Jesus was talking about when he first said it. They didn't know that walking out of that room 
Jesus would take them to the Garden of Gethsemane that night. They didn't know that just a couple of hours later, Judas would come with, with an army <laughs> uh, carrying swords and weapons is what the Bible says, lantern swords and weapons to arrest Jesus. They didn't know that was coming. Jesus did, of course. So when you turn just two chapters later, Jesus looks at them one more time. In John chapter 15, he says this in verse 12. This is my commandment. Love one another the same way I have loved you. And he adds these words. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. <laughs> he has spent three years putting love on display. Three years telling them what love is, what love is not. And then before he's arrested, moments before he's arrested, he looks back at them and says, I'm giving you a new command. I want you to, to love one another. I want you to love one another the same way I have loved you. Because there is no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends. And I'm calling you my friends. That is a love we don't hear about, read about, or see a lot. This is why Jesus said this is fresh. This is different. This is a new love that will keep you in love. This is a new love where you will stay in love because it's more than just a feeling. And, and I want to wrap it up by just, by just saying, what is Jesus telling us? I think Jesus is, is telling us this. Number one, love isn't optional for my followers. I mean, he says it over and over in different ways, but so clear, this is a commandment. And if you're my follower, this is not optional. I want you to love people the same way I have loved you. And Jesus actually said, this is the litmus test. This is how they will know that you belong to me, not by your knowledge, not by your church attendance. This is what he said. They will know you're mine. They will know you're my followers if you love one another the same way I've loved you. So it's not optional for us as believers. As hard as it might be, it's not optional. Let me just ask you just some pointed questions. Do you love people who vote differently than you? Do you love people who think you should be wearing a mask right now? Do you love people who think we should have never worn masks? Do you love people who look different than you? It's so interesting. Satan, our enemy, has done an amazing job these past couple of years of taking things like a mask, taking things and just amping them up to such a degree where we walk away from friendships, relationships, churches, small groups, because someone just thinks and perhaps believes something different about something. And Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples if you keep loving one another. In spite of your differences, love one another. Love is the heartbeat of our Savior, and it's not optional for us as followers. I think Jesus is also telling us this, the greatest love involves death. That's what he said. 
There's no greater love. There's there, Mention the types of love, and at the top, the greatest love is a man that would lay down his life for his friend. This is so interesting because Jesus, in this moment, in this one verse, that, that the greatest love involves death, he just gave you the secret to a marriage that you've always wanted. <laughs> you know what he's basically saying? You want a great marriage? Die. That's what he's saying. Die to your right. Die to your list of what your wife should be doing for you. Die to your list of what you want your husband to do for you. You lay that list down and you die to that and you love him the way Jesus loved you. How did he love you? He served you. That's how he loved you. You serve her. Yeah, but I don't think I love her. No, 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 not about a feeling. Jesus said, if you want real love, if you want life, it comes through death first. And this, this is the paradox of Christianity in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriage, in our dating life, that when we die, something alive comes. It's just the craziest thing. You don't get a resurrection without a death first. Jesus couldn't pass the cross and get to the resurrection. He died, but it's through his death that came a resurrection. Listen, Valentine's week, the love week. If you want your relationship to resurrect, love the way he loved you and just die. <laughs> it's, it's a paradox. I get it, but it's life-changing to you and your relationship that you're in. So, what is Jesus telling us? Love is not optional for his followers. The greatest love actually involves death. And the third thing that I think Jesus is saying to us in these couple of passages is this. I really do love you. Man, there's so many times we go through life and we wonder, we question, do you really love me? Do you really love me? Boy, if he ever used a megaphone in this moment before being betrayed by one of his own before going to the cross, he was just saying there's no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends, and that's what I'm calling him, my friends. That is love, and he really does love you. You know, well, I've always known that, but it's the secret to this new love, because here's what he said. You love other people the same way I have loved you. If I'm not experiencing this, I can't give this. I can't give to my spouse, to my friends, to my coworkers. I can't give what I don't have. So if I'm struggling here, the problem's not the other person. I need to back up and start with, Jesus, when is the last time I let you love me? When is the last time I opened up my heart to share with you where I'm hurting so that you can begin mending and putting my heart back together? When is the last time I have loved you back? This then changes this. And he would say, I really do love you. And I want you to let me love you. <laughs> 